was a protest leader, and then I was a legislator, and then I was an inmate. Today I sit down with Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Nathan Law, author of Freedom, How We Lose It and How We Fight Back. The world had been really complacent towards the rise of China. We've opened up ourselves to them, but we have not developed any mechanism to hold them accountable. China's communist regime touts itself as a superior alternative to Western liberal democracy, even as it spreads its authoritarian values abroad. What's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in Xinjiang, and the rest of China is a wake-up call to the world. We must see it as our existential crisis. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Nathan Law, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. My, my pleasure. Well, Nathan, big, big congratulations on a couple of things. First of all, you just launched your book, Freedom, How to Lose It and How to Fight Back. And that's, a, frankly, a question that a lot of people in the world are asking right now. So I'm very excited to talk to you about this. And secondly, you had the opportunity to bring up the reality for democracy in the world and specifically for Hong Kong at the Summit for Democracy uh, recently. So, you know, bringing a voice to Hong Kong again, which doesn't get nearly enough coverage. I think that's very important. Thank you so much. Um, for me, it meant a lot for me that um, I had the opportunity to speak at, at a Summit for Democracy. It's a, democ uh, it's a summit that gather 110 countries and region and um, each of the country's leaders were paying attention to the speakers. And I was um, very privileged that I had the opportunity to have um, um, one of the two um, intersection remarks um, sharing the platform with um, Venezuela's President Guaido and to talk about um, my struggle, struggle for Hong Kong and also the implication of Hong Kong erosion of freedom to the world. So this is a, a good opportunity for me. I hope that I deliver my message well. Well, and frankly, what you spoke about, um, it was, uh, you know, almost like a kind of a synopsis of the book there, right? Um, we, we've had this situation where the national security law came in and a lot of people kind of watching from outside saw this dramatic, dramatic curtailing of freedom in Hong Kong. But this has actually been happening, happening for quite a while longer. Like even back in 2019, before the national security law, I had uh, interviewed uh, Benny Tai, you know, the constitutional lawyer who you mentioned in the speech. But today, if I did that uh, with anybody, they would go to jail and I would probably go to jail if I ever showed up in Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the deterioration of Hong Kong's freedom has been ongoing for the past years. But uh, we've come to a um, like a going down off from the cliff in June 2020 when the national security law came in place. So for me, I, I in the book Freedom, I narrated um, my political journey for the past um, seven years, where I was um, from a student protest leader to the youngest elected uh, legislator in Hong Kong, and I was disqualified, became an inmate, and also um, becoming an exile activist. All these changes actually embodies a set of um, suppression in Hong Kong and uh, reforming the erosion of freedom. Um, so for me, it is a, like the decline of democracy and the rise of authoritarianism um, is not an abstract theory. It's a painful and personal story. And um, from these stories of mine, we could really see um, the side of Hong Kong um, and also um, understanding more about how an authoritarian or even totalitarian regime could erode a once praised as the freest city in Asia. 
This has been happening for a while, this erosion of freedoms, but do you remember the first moment where you thought to yourself, okay, wait a sec, something has really gone wrong here and it awakened you. Do you remember this? Yeah, yeah, and, and I think um, the story I um, depict in freedom actually um, go a little bit longer. It, it, it started with, um, uh, for me, the very first time that I, I was um, going across the border from mainland China to Hong Kong. And back then, um, I remember that um, my mom had to do something, paperwork in the border, and I was six, and she stopped two bills to me. One is renminbi, which is the currency using mainland China, and the other is Hong Kong dollars. And that was the time I realized that um, there are different there, there are differences in the system of Hong Kong and the system of China. And to the latest stage of my life, of course, I realized that the, the differences are much larger than currencies. They are like different sets of um, weight of life, different set of understanding the government and their relationship with the people and also the understanding of rule of law and how the government is uh, held accountable by the people. Um, and these things are crucial for Hong Kong. And if we're talking about um, Hong Kong become a, becoming a strange city, becoming an just ordinary Chinese city, it means that these differences are disappearing. And that's the least thing that we want to happen in Hong Kong. You know, the, here, here's the thing, right? With, with something like freedom, uh, and this has been, you know, my parents uh, escaped from communist Poland in the 70s. They were looking for freedom, <laughs> right, when they came to North America. Um, but in a country that's been, for, that, that's been free or a place, you know, Hong Kong that's been free, um, it, it's almost sort of hard to see the erosion to freedoms before it's too late for many people. So the people that are kind of noticing it early are rare and they're, they're trying to say something but often aren't listened to, right? Yeah, well, um, there, there has been a lot of people trying to protest for the past decades, but it was really until 2014, 2019 that the protest movement amassed so much popular support. Maybe these people, when they like protest earlier, things could change, but um, history cannot like repeat. And for us, um, it is what was most important is from our experience, we can remind the rest of the world that the rise of um, authoritarian power is literally one of the largest crises that we are facing. The world had been really complacent towards the rise of China. We have opened up ourselves to them, um, including them in WTO, um, including them in all the international um, system, but we have not developed any mechanism to hold them accountable. It's just like we're inviting a wolf into the house. We are hoping that they will behave themselves, even though it's unlikely. And when it really hurting the others, um, we simply don't have any tools to control them. And that is what's happening for the past two decades. Um, so when we talk about democratic recession, which is a lot, one of the most important notion in this democracy, uh, summer for democracy, we must take the rise of authoritarianism in account and try to do something to counter it. Well, here, so actually, this reminds me of something that you said that I that I just noted, and you said our institutions are losing their ability to persuade us that a liberal international order will also prevail. Wow. 
Yeah, I think it, it is not only a theory, but if you go down to the street and then ask young people whether they believe in democracy, whether they will believe that democratic values will last and the world is walking towards a more democratic way. I think if you ask people in the 80s and if you ask people today, they would give completely different answers. But now there, there, there's a, a sort of pes, um, pessimistic um, prediction towards the world. People are thinking that, oh, the world's not going to be better. We've got climate change issue. And for now, we've got pandemic and we've got rise of authoritarianism and democracy is seemingly not able to say that we can definitely change the tides and do better and we can hold the human rights perpetrators accountable. So I think um, it's really a wake up call. What, what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in Xinjiang and the rest of China is a wake up call to the world that we must see it as our existential crisis. It is not just about like helping people in Hong Kong or helping people in Xinjiang. It's about how we can de defend democracy, um, the system that we believe among all the other system, at least is the least worst one. No, absolutely. And the, so here's the thing, right? I think Americans, perhaps naively, right, in their sort of, you know, let's call it extreme engagement with the Chinese regime, believe they could somehow change China. It would become a democracy in their minds. I mean, I've heard this from so many people who no longer believe this to be true, lawmakers and so forth, right? Um, but it, it seems like it actually went the other way. And a number of people have told me this too. What are your thoughts on that? The appeasement and engagement strategy failed, obviously, um, when the world was predicting that China would step into a classic modernization theory by having large economy, you've got rise of middle class and the middle class demanding rule of law, demanding private property, and the whole country is moving towards the liberalization economy and political rights. It just has not realized. and. China has been walking into complete opposite direction. Um, these wealth they gathered, the technology, they are all actually um, helping China to become more authoritarian and or even to degree totalitarian. Um, the, the Chinese Communist Party today is literally more te technologically sophisticated than the one in 1984, the Orwellian states. And the world has not developed anything to hold them accountable. And we've been seeing change of attitude in recent two years um, after Hong Kong's protest, after the Xinjiang genocide issues um, broke out. But we are far from having any enough coordinated pushback. So in, in the speech, um, in the remark of my uh, Summer for Democracy participation, I really stressed the point that we should change some, and we should definitely be united to push back um, the authoritarian expansion from, from the Chinese Communist Party. This is the thing, like there almost seems to be, I, I, okay, I, I remember in 2009, okay, Thomas Friedman wrote this famous or infamous op-ed, okay, I think it was 2009, um, basically saying things like, you know, the, he was admiring the efficiency of how China could operate to get things done and so forth. And I kind of wonder sometimes if there isn't a little bit of that admiration when we see all the challenges of democracy up and down and so forth. And I'm wondering if, like, if, 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 
you know, you think China may have changed us in that direction. Hey, look, there's something very, very attractive as of being able to sort of affect change from the top, demand it and, and, and make it happen, you know, almost instantly. Well, first of all, when we look at Chinese news, we, of course, look at the bright things because the bad things you can't report it. It's, it's kind of like a selective understanding of China because they control all the media and about all the atrocities that we've been hearing um, in recent few years, um, I, I don't think that um, there, um, there were enough outlets in the past to make people have a clearer understanding of how lives in China look like. Um, when Xi Jinping says that they, all, they lift all the people out of property, but um, uh, Li Keqiang uh, also supplements saying that there are still 600 million people living under um, uh, uh, extreme poverty line. Um, it, it's just Xi Jinping making the, 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 the poverty line much lower than it should have been so that they, they, they could really live, live, live that, like claim that they, they've lived that much amount of people out of property. And, and these are propaganda. Um, so it's definitely when foreign commentators, if they don't really have an accurate understanding of how China's system, propaganda system works, they will definitely look at all the bright side of it, thinking that, oh, it's a highly efficient government, it's a government that only help and don't do bad things. But unfortunately, I think the, the awareness of the media in, few, in recent few years have been drastically increased and they've been exposing a lot of atrocities in mainland China. And just don't forget, um, a powerful valiant is causing more harm than the weak one. And we are definitely seeing an extremely large authoritarian power. Um, so I think for me, that that's something not for us to praise, but to worry. I think they're, they're just like stepping into um, a completely wrong understanding about the Chinese Party. Well, so here's the thing. Let's let's take the Forced Labor Prevention Act, right? And that was something that was being debated in Congress recently. There was actually quite a bit of activity behind the scenes to kind of, you know, basically lighten that or remove it or, you know, and this we're, we're talking about something that's been, you know, repeatedly by multiple very, very credible bodies established to be a genocide. At the very least, you could have a forced labor prevention provision. But this is somehow difficult to do in Congress on the issue, which perhaps is the most bipartisan issue in the U.S. Congress, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely, uh, we should long be thinking about excluding forced labor products or surface in, into our supply chain. Um, at least we should start looking into it. I understand that it's, it's difficult. Uh, it touches a lot of business interests. But at least these are, are the things that we can do to say a uh, clear, to give a clear stance, to say no to these atrocities, um, even though it's difficult to, to, to completely address that, but at least in principle, we should go against it. Um, so for me, it's also uh, in, in another wake up call to, um, to the business sector, saying that it's time for us to at least to take human rights a bit more serious than before. We were seeing in the Pansor incident, the WTA has been demonstrating a good example of how they can, um, even though facing um, a possible loss of a huge fortune, but they also stand up for their fellows and stand up 
for the rights that they believe. And when you compare to how NBA behave when the general manager, Mori, was criticized by the Chinese government in 2019 just because he supported um, Hong Kong and he was forced to re retract those tweets and possibly apologize, you could really see the difference. So I think we, sh we need more WTA and less NBA. And I think using this, this act um, as a reminder to the Congress and to the public, um, it, it plays a large role. You know, I, I, I honestly, you shame me a little bit here because you're, you know, you are so optimistic about this. I mean, I, I'm aware, and of course, this is very much chronicled in your book of what you've been through. I mean, you were elected uh, rightfully into the LegCo, the Hong Kong legislature, and then you were basically removed just so that there wouldn't be enough people to be able to kind of, you know, block the Beijing dictates from happening, right? If, if I recall that correctly, perhaps you can, you can, you can correct me here. You've seen, you know, some of the worst of the erosions personally on your very skin, and you're still being optimistic about this. I mean, my, my hat off to you, sir. Well, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that I'm so optimistic, but I, I, I do believe that as an activist, I'm not entitled to lose hope. I think hope is something that really supports us to go this long way. I don't believe that Chinese Communist Party is something that would, let's say, um, face massive defeats in just a few years. It is a long road to go, but um, as long as we realize and, and understand the reality, and when we still choose to continue to fight, and that is where courage lies. Um, I don't want to fool people saying that um, it will be an easy road. It will be something that we can get a massive victory in a short period of time. It, it's just not, not the case. You just have to think about, well, you have to commit a lot if you're going with us. But you're going. If you are going with us, then you're 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 a person with conscience, and that's how I I I I, I kind of like proceed these things. So for me, even though I, I've personally lived through um some of the most landmark cases um of political suppression in Hong Kong, including go to jail, being unseated, facing all these um criticism from mainland China, propaganda for now being wanted possibly being on top of the wanted list under the national security law and will face life imprisonment when I return to Hong Kong. Um, but I will still choose um, to fight alongside with my comrades. So where does that energy come from? Why do you choose this? There's, I mean, this is this is very, very important question. I think for me, I'm a person with responsibility um, from Seven years ago, when I was in the Red Movement, I already felt a strong sense of responsibility when I saw people giving their support to me, putting their trust on me, believing in me that I have the capacity to change something. Even though for now, the, the situation of Hong Kong is getting dire and dire, but still there are lots of Hong Kong people trying to do something and hoping that uh, people like me, political activists, that we can make a change no matter how small it is. So for me, um, it's that sense of responsibility and duty. Of course, um, there are also my, the, the people that I've been working with for the past few years, that they are now in jail. They're, they're literally on the front lines of facing the Chinese Communist Party's suppression. 
trying to trying to get them out. This is also one of my important um, vocation and, 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 and pushing force behind all my um, advocacy work. Well, I mean, I, I wish you the biggest success with this. What do you think really is kind of the biggest weak point of the Chinese regime? And sometimes it can seem so monolithic and, you know, unstoppable. Where, where, where is the weakness? Truth. They deny <laughs> truth. They censor every possible gateway of delivering truth in mainland China. And it's probably coming to Hong Kong. Um, well, we've got a lot of movies talking about 2019 protest that banned literally in, in, in Hong Kong and they can only be screened in the US, in the UK. And I, I have an initiative for bringing them to overseas to make sure that people can watch it. And for me, well, writing the book also means that I know history from of Hong Kong um, in a way that is outside of Beijing's propaganda and its, it's truth and its facts. So I think these are also important things that we are doing, and definitely these um, work would shade her that thin, that thin and shallow legitimacy that the Chinese Party is enjoying. You know, you mention something uh, towards the end of the book when you talk about the, the how to fight back portion, right? And there's this, I mean, I've always loved this statement, you know, be like water. Right. This is this is how the protesters uh, uh, imagine themselves. You write confronted by the most powerful, controlling and repressive authoritarian power. Protesters must be like water. We must be able to flow over any obstacle and take on any form. Now, so this is not just advice for, you know, people fighting authoritarianism in China. It's probably anywhere. Um, but but tell me more about this. What does this really mean? If. It applies to my personal example. I was a protest leader, and then I was a legislator, and then I was an inmate. And for now, I'm an exile activist doing a lot of international advocacy work. In different stages of my life, it's changing so quickly, but I had to adopt. I had to have different skill sets, meeting different people, doing different level of advocacy work so that I could best perform. For me, um, Be Water means that you change forms, you change shape um, in order to best counter the threats and hurdles that you're facing. So for me, um, it's also an important motto. If I, for now, as an exile activist, but I still retain a mindset of doing advocacy in Hong Kong or a mindset of a legislator, then I'm impossible to do my work properly. Um, so I think this means a lot to me. and. For people who uh, wanted to be involved in in a work of enhancing social justice, to pushing forward changes in the society, you, should, you must understand where you are. You must understand how you can best accommodate your environment and find your best uh, way to achieve it. Understand more about it and adopt to your situation. So. I'm going to ask you for just a few kind of messages for different groups of people because this is a wonderful opportunity. I mean, to the to Hong Kongers, what is your message? Actually, you said something at the end, but in in Cantonese of your of your of your speech. But what is your message to Hong Kongers? My message to Hong Kong is: persist. Don't let the Chinese Party to dissect you from the others. They want to atomize everyone, making us feeling lonely, feeling helpless, feeling um, 
just living by yourself, no matter how much they crack the civil society, maintain public life, be connected with the others, even though it's not political, even though it's just talking about pop star, talking about chilling thing, but make sure you're connected to the other people and make sure you let the memory of the protest float in your head. Don't forget it. And what about uh, mainland Chinese? Do you have any thoughts for them? Because I know a few of them will be watching this as well. Well, for the mainland Chinese, um, do not be swallowed by the world of China's propaganda. Do not be swallowed by, by WeChat, by the world created by WeChat. If you want to know more and you want to keep safe, make sure that you have the readiness to live a double life. You have one phone with WeChat, one phone with Twitter. You have one phone with Baidu, one phone is with Google. Protect yourself and grow yourself. No, no, get a better understanding about the world and what we are fighting for. Well, and so finally, for anybody out there fighting tyranny who sees the seeds of it or is in the thick of it or is has been imprisoned as one of our journalists has in Nigeria for example what would your message to be for to people fighting tyranny in general do not give up i know it is a tough role a lot of people are facing much more brutal suppression than what i've been through um but i believe that as long as we are together as long as we are doing work that can wake the world. I think there are always possibility to change. Um, I'll, I'm here with you and I will make sure that the democratic struggle of Hong Kong is not just about Hong Kong people, but about making sure that we live in a more just and um, a more liberal system that we can definitely counter the rise of authoritarianism. Well, uh, I just want to mention, uh, as we finish, your book, Freedom, How We Lose It and How to Fight Back. I strongly recommend this book. Nathan Law, thank you so much. Uh, so good to have you on the show. Thank you so much.